Thank you for listening to the In The Lead show. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and check out the In The Lead newsletter. Every week I send out mindfulness and leadership tips to help you become the best leader of you. See the show notes for a link to subscribe to the newsletter or go to www.intheleadshow.com and subscribe there. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the In The Lead show. My name is Jennifer Sang and today I'm joined by Sherry Foose, who is the founder of the narrative method and who is also a marriage and family therapist. And we're going to talk today about relational um, mindfulness. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Great. I am too. I'm really excited. Um, A big part of this podcast in the lead is about teaching people self-leadership principles and skills. And one big component for me, at least, is that mindfulness piece. So I'm really excited. And I also firmly believe that everything in life is relational. I've done a lot of therapy work. I've done probably over 15 years of therapy work now. So I really understand and get the idea of um, how relational our lives actually are. So I think that's a really big component. Um, But I would love to, before we get into the topic, to learn a little bit more about you. So tell me who who is Sherry? Well, um, let's see. I grew up in New Jersey. I came from a dysfunctional family. And I think that the longing for really meaningful connections and being seen and appreciated has driven me my whole life. And I started off responding to that uh, by being a performer, um, uh, improvisation, songwriting, performing, all that stuff. And I got to a certain point where I felt like it was fun, but it didn't matter. And like you, I've always um, really benefited from psychotherapy. And I just instantly knew that that was what I was going to do. And one thing that I think really impacts my motivation to do group work is that as powerful and important as it is to have um, essential uh, one-on-one relationships, there is a power in groups that can't be replicated uh, one-on-one. And that power is a normalization of the things that we feel ashamed of or embarrassed about. And I believe that what impacts our psychology at least as much, if not more, than our family of origin and our experiences in school and elders and all that stuff is what we call the cult of culture, just the constant onslaught of noise. And by the way, this started before the internet, obviously it's way worse. And so we get the message from the time we're very, very young that we're not good enough. And every woman knows she's not pretty enough, skinny enough, you know, on and on and on. And men have, you know, the the comparable things. And so you don't go around talking to people, uh, you know, uh, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you're my boss. Let me just tell you how fat I feel today. You know, we don't do that. So it feels even worse because we hide it. So in our groups, we're not talking about how fat we are, though people are invited to talk about anything. But we're looking at, we do two groups. When it's a conversation salon, we're looking at really compelling video material. And based on that, um, I'll give you a prompt. And all of this corresponds to whichever of the 12 core concepts we're looking at this week. This week, we are looking at relational mindfulness. And relational mindfulness is this, understanding that we are social creatures, 
that as important as it is to have a good relationship with yourself before you can ever have a good relationship with someone else, we all know that just ending there with ourselves is not that great. Um, and there are many practices that have helped us, such as mindfulness, meditation, all of these kinds of things, which are great. Relational mindfulness is not for me, it's for us. And the idea is you, us, and me last. We look at what can happen when we put ourselves aside as we're listening to someone share their story or their feelings or what's going on with them. It enables us to better see it from their perspective without our assumptions getting in the way. And the truth is when we meet a new person, it's a little bit easier, but you know, when it's your spouse or someone close to you and you've said this a million times, you know, uh, it's hard to realize, maybe if I've said it a million times, maybe I really haven't communicated it. And so this is a way to create a little bit of formality around serious conversations. I would love to say that I live in this state of, you know, uh, peace and nirvana and perfect communication all the time. I don't know that I'm ever getting there, but I know that we can all up our game when it comes to important conversations. So it's difficult, it's completely easy to comprehend, but it takes practice. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Just like I was telling everyone, I usually tell people that it takes practice and just like any skill or any, you know, new thing you want to develop in your life, it takes practice and you have to, I like to use everyday kind of, uh, moments to practice that even like the mindfulness of just walking or how I'm thinking. Um, I firmly believe at least through my work and what I've discovered in my own life is that the more I can do that with myself, the larger my capacity is to do that with others. So it's like, as I'm able to, let's say for meet discomfort in a therapy session where it can be really uncomfortable, I'm noticing all the chatter going on in my own mind and trying to really stay present and also trying to meet it at the same time. That is a real skill that, you know, it takes a long time to develop and I struggle with it sometimes too, but I think there's some relational aspect to that where we can, the more we can know ourselves and understand what's happening to us, we can then start to almost be a bridge or have some kind of extension out into the world. Um, so for me, it's always been, it felt like an inside out approach where it's like, if I want to start being more relational with others, maybe I should start being more relational with me first and figuring out like, Hey, what's going on? Um, inside of me and what am I thinking? So that when I am in those moments where I need to really connect with another person, I can identify what is my narrative mm. and what's like actually happening, right? Because there can be multiple narratives happening at the same time I've noticed. Um, and that tends to kind of cloud our judgment or cloud maybe how we approach a conversation. So yeah. I think relational mindfulness is absolutely critical. Um, how do you see people relating to relational mindfulness? Like in an everyday situation, let's say, do you have an example you can share that like help give some context as to like what exactly that means? Like maybe you're in the workplace and you know, you have a boss that's 
real micromanager, right? Maybe how, how does that come up or how does relational, relational mindfulness play into everyday that, stuff? A, a work situation gives you a really good example because it's not that you should, you know, be as open as you would be with your family members, mm-hmm. um, especially if there's some kind of conflict. But the most important way to begin an important conversation is to say to the person, is this still a good time? Because that can save a lot of trouble. You know what? I'm distracted. I don't want to spill out my vulnerability and have you looking at your watch. So it's always better and with no penalty, right? We even have to feel lucky if a person is open enough to say that they're not they're not available to be there. And then as we begin talking, um, we make an agreement that we're going to take turns. And I'm going to say, I'm going to speak first, let's say, um, but in as, as close to one minute as possible, just to lay out my ideas in chunks so that you can really hear the details. It's very hard, especially when you're being present, to hear the words and also really associate them on a deep enough level to understand the other person. So shorter chunks are certainly easier to remember. And then even though it may seem a little bit awkward, the value of giving you an opportunity to reflect back what you think I said, we can make corrections as we go. Mm -hmm. And we also have to be very open-hearted about respecting people, not necessarily seeing things the way we do, either having a hard time to understand or pushing back. Um, Because at the end of the day, you can be right (laughs) or you can get on better. And it's- I would say you can be right or you can be happy. Exactly. Um, People really latch onto that right though. It's like, no, this is the way. And I mean, we see that in politics, we see it all over the place now where it's like, no, my belief or my way of thinking is right. And I just think, wow, I, I watch people just have these conversations and seem so unproductive in so many ways that it, to me, what I see, to be honest, and, and you're a therapist, so you might see similar is like, oh, those are their traumas, right? Like, yeah. I feel like those are their traumas Absolutely. getting activated and we're just and, and I'd be curious to know more because, you know, I've done a lot of work, like I said, in therapy, I have a psychology background as well. And I just, I'm really fascinated by trauma. So I'm curious, like, how do you see trauma kind of getting in the way from us being able to be relational? I think that's the only thing that gets in our way. Um, when you have a trauma, particularly if it's pre-verbal or you're so young, you may not remember it. And there's no way to ever kind of understand it in language. You can have an amorphous feeling and you'll never know what it is and it doesn't feel right. And you know what? We can use stories to equate experiences in ways that may be productive, but there is that feeling if you can't really understand or unwind it. So as therapists, we usually unwind it retrospectively by people's behavior. Um, But what what is just so important for me to appreciate is when people do things that are insulting or annoying or off putting in any way, 
sometimes they push our buttons and we respond. Sometimes they push our buttons and we're ashamed of how we respond. But the goal is to stand back from it and yeah. always recognize first that that's them. Mm-hmm. That anything that somebody says that is either deliberately attacking or you know uh, that insults you for your own reasons, it's still coming from the other person. And to investigate what that person means might take you both on a good journey. Mm-hmm. Because as we understand what it was that entangled us in a negative way, we can come together in a way that's deeper than we'd ever have been otherwise. So if only that reason, it's really good to not fear the struggle that an argument may have, as long as it's fair. Yeah. I think that was one of the many revelations I've had through my personal development journey was like the closer I could get to my own trauma and the closer I could see it, the more I'm able to identify it when I'm out in the world and I am trying to be relational, right? Like a good example would be from somebody on social media recently who just like said something that really triggered me. Like my instincts were to like, if you were in front of me, I might've like lurched out and attacked you. Like I was so bothered by it, but in that moment, I was able to kind of stop and say, okay, Jen, like, is this your trauma or is this her trauma? I think both of ours were kind of coming up at that moment, right? The initial, you know, invitation into the space was very, um, edgy. I also noticed how I was like, really, but for me to kind of take that step back and say, okay, I'm going to walk away. My, my solution was I'm going to step away from this for, you know, 20, 30 minutes, let my, you know, system kind of calm down, gather myself, come back to this later, address it at a different, in a different space. Um, and you know, when I was able to do that, I was actually able to see kind of through the, a lot of the edginess, kind of her point and what she was trying to say, had I just reacted in that moment, I think it would have been purely from that wounded trauma place where I wanted to defend, I wanted to, you know, attack or, you know, really just lash out at somebody. I think that pausing for me has really been a really critical, like, first of all, recognizing it saying, Jen, you're having either a trauma response or you're having something's getting activated. Take that step back, gather yourself, let your, you know, whole system kind of reset and re kind of balance. Um, and then approach it from a different way. I don't know if we do that enough, I feel like we're very reactive. Like we just kind of in the moment, somebody triggers me, I react, I'm trying to blame you. I'm right. You're wrong. Like, and it just feels like that dance over and over again. And I just feel like even in organizations, we don't do that well. And one of the things I like to talk to my leadership team about is about identifying those trauma responses. And I say, you don't have to be a therapist, but just have an awareness of when those things are coming up, because then you can help facilitate a different conversation, a different space where it's not, everyone's getting activated and triggered. And we're just kind of all blowing up at each other and, you know, having a really unproductive conversation, but recognizing when that happens in yourself and in others, um, I think helps when you take, like you're saying that kind of step back to go, okay, 
do the mindfulness. You know, I took a walk, I breathed, I even got something to eat and I actually had forgotten about it. And then I was like, oh yeah, I should probably go back to that. And I would like to revisit that because it probably had something in it for me that was valuable that I could pull out. And maybe I'm in a different space to be able to approach that. Um, What I love about what you're sharing is that although it may not cost you as much as it did when you just started practicing this, Mm -hmm. it's such a courageous thing to do. And although I think there are so many methodologies to achieve this kind of work that we all seek to do to be healthier and more connected and all, Mm -hmm. but I think the only way to deal with um, being aroused and watching yourself go from one to two or one to 10, however that is, mm-hmm. is to step away. And I, here's a great example. Have you ever woken up in the morning and realized I didn't press send? Yes. I love myself because <laughs> the next day, or even mm-hmm. as you're describing, if you're very developed in this practice, maybe in 10 minutes, but certainly the next day, you look at the thing that pushed your buttons that made you want to send that email. Eh, you see a bigger picture now. Yeah. It's not all bad, whatever it is. We do need time to process because there are so many factors in what's happening objectively and what's happening with our own traumas and our own associations. Yeah. I think the fact that people don't practice this more is really just a simple fact that we're not really taught these things. Now that SEL, social emotional learning, is coming into elementary schools more, I think kids will be better prepared for emotional intelligence. But, you know, I can't blame people who went through schooling at a time where not that many of their parents maybe were as introspective as folks are today. And even so, I mean, by the way, did anybody ever get offered that class when they were pregnant to learn <laughs> how to be a mother or a father? You know, yeah, right? So, I mean, clearly we yeah. pay the price as individuals and as a society for not having better relational skills. But it's not something that you're born with, it's something that you observe and copy. Yeah. And I think it's about, really, for me, it's been about meeting and embracing the discomfort because so a little bit of background, like I've had anxiety most of my life. I've even suffered from panic disorder for part of my life and I'm a highly sensitive person. So things really impact me and get overstimulated and aroused very easily. Um, so my nervous system just in general is always feeling like it's like at a heightened state of either fight or flight or freeze or um, panic or something. So I have had to just do a lot. I think just for my own mental health well-being was like, I need to get a handle of this because I can't live. And I think mm-hmm. if you don't necessarily have that same experience, maybe it doesn't feel as urgent, right? Like, oh, I mean, I'm fine. Like I can manage my life perfectly fine. And I've been successful. I have kids, I've raised them. We're all good. Everyone's fine. Like, I don't need, you know, to do that. But I feel like the more I've gone to that discomfort, and been able, so I actually shared this on a recent podcast, and I'm sure you can relate to this as a, as a therapist is I can remember this time when I was sitting with my therapist and we were talking about something that was very, very traumatic for me. And it was just, I could feel it in my body. I could feel the anxiety and the panic. 
what happened was a voice popped up in my head as I was talking to her that said, you need to run. You need to get out of here now. Wow. Like this is life or death. I mean, it was literally like wow. you, like that flight instinct kicked in and I was like in a full blown, like panic, like, oh my gosh. And I'm trying to sit here and be really present with her. And this was an old thing. So it's not like it surprised me. I was like, oh, there you are again. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> but I remember thinking I have to stay here. Like, I can't keep running from this. Like, I almost feel like I'm running from myself. I'm running from almost like a boogeyman or someone who's like, it's not real, but it's like a story that I've made up in my head that I'm in danger and my body's telling me I need to go or I'm going to die. It was that like, I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but it's a strong feeling of like, you are something bad is going to happen. Well, it sounds just, like she touched on something that was really trying to stay protected and hidden and yeah. that made you run. But it was that like moment that was so defining for me where I, I told myself, no, I'm not going to run anymore. Like, even if I die right here on this couch in this moment, that's what's going to happen because wow. I can't do it anymore. Like, I just felt like I came to a point where I was just so tired. But it was like, oh, like, no, I, I have nowhere else to go. Like you can't keep running from you and you're, so it almost feels like it's this process of really trying to get present with that discomfort and being able to really just be, just be okay with that. And I feel like a lot of times in relational mindfulness, it's that it's like when someone triggers you, can you be okay? Just really sitting with it and going, okay, like that touched me that activated me that triggered me. Okay. I see that. And you know, now it's about, I have choice. I can choose. Do I want to stay here? Like, do I want to be present with this? Do I want to take a walk? Do I want to breathe? Do I want to react? Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's more of that choice we give ourselves when we can be very present with that discomfort. That is like the foundation for me. in when we talk about like relational mindfulness, because like I tell people every single day, you will get a chance to practice this because things come up, you know, conflict comes up, triggers come up, but can we just practice being really comfortable with that uncomfortable part? That but I you... think it, it takes climbing that mountain before you realize it. You know, there's so many brilliant things that I have been told and even believe, but couldn't embrace until I got there. And I'm sure there's way more than I'll ever get to. Yeah. But when we do have a trauma and it's unresolved, it's really felt to be frightening because it's like endless. Yeah. It's an infinite black hole that feels like it will kill us. Mm -hmm. But what is so incredible, and I, I just observed this and how easily you told this difficult story, mm. I believe that when you have resolved an issue, even though that issue had you on the floor, you wouldn't go outside, you didn't feel well, you were self-destructive, whatever. Mm -hmm. Once you've resolved it and you kind of understand what happened to get me into that place of lack of balance or fear, whatever that was, mm -hmm. and I have sufficiently resolved that part of myself because I'm not going to be perfect right. that I can live with the fact that, okay, I have kind of an Achilles heel here. Yeah. I, I'm sort of depressive. So it, at times I'm, it doesn't bother me. I enjoy yeah. certain parts of it. 
that takes not only a huge amount of courage, a lot of time. Yeah. Here's where I really want to take it. I am so fascinated by how this thing that was hovered over by us for our entire emotional life felt to be the biggest shame, the biggest danger. If it got out, I would lose everything. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't cost me anything to tell anybody yeah. on a podcast. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh, baby. That is, it's just so beautiful. I feel like that's part of the healing journey is the more we, when my, my therapist and I talk a lot about that integration piece that I feel like you're talking about, it's about integrating those things. It's not about pushing away the anxiety. It's not about forgetting about the imposter or trying to annihilate, you know, the judge it's about, I know these parts of me exist. How can I, as a bigger, truer, higher self, play a bigger role in that where it's like, I don't have to be necessarily defined by it or controlled by it. The narrative doesn't run me. It's about, can I understand the narrative and what the skills are, right? There are parts of my anxiety that I do actually love as well, but it's when you get out of balance, right? And it becomes too big. Then it becomes like, you know, like you said, self-destructive or can for me go into panic and be like overloading my system. Um, how do you keep that more in balance? And for me, that's also part of the journey is about that. You're right. 15, 16 years I've been in therapy. That's a long time. It doesn't happen over. And this revelation just came to me like four or five years ago, not even three years ago. Like, yeah, it takes a lot of time to build that, but I think it's a really rewarding process for me to be able to say, okay, I'm more comfortable being me. Yes. All parts of me. Right. Even absolutely. I mean, to be able to feel pretty good. Most Mm -hmm. of the time about living in your skin is, is really wonderful. And I think one of the things that makes this especially challenging is that we have these ideas out there in the cult of culture about normality Mm. and people are very pathologized and, you know, people don't have so many disorders. There are people who have serious mental disorders, biological or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Percentage-wise, it's not that many people. Most of us are suffering for lack of safe relationships. And in safe relationships, we do automatically begin to unwind our trauma or our trauma reactions. But to To create a safe relationship does take an effort and the willingness to be very present and aware with your feelings and behaviors. And you know what, sometimes I can look at, you know, choices I've made and that awareness makes me feel badly about myself, but it's better off (laughs) for me to take in those difficult feelings and be able to recognize I need to make a correction. And if I make that correction, I'm going to love myself. Yeah. Also, I like, you know, I think we spend a lot of time just as humans kind of shaming ourselves. Like we pile a lot of stuff on ourselves. And, you know, one thing, uh, you know, I had a pretty traumatic event happen to me in my mid twenties with a relationship ending. And at the time it felt like this, like earth shattering, like this is the biggest event that's ever going to happen to me. Like it just, it was a really big event. Um, And 
you know, the other person might be thinking to himself like, oh, I feel bad, right? Like I did, I inflicted this pain or I, you know, did all this. But in reality, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because that was the impetus to get into therapy. That was the impetus to set me off on a new path in life. So I think also we need to cut ourselves a break because even if we make mistakes, even if we say the wrong thing, we hurt somebody, it also might be the best thing to happen for them, whether they recognize it or not, it could be exactly what they need. And can we not pile on more shame to that, right? And create a bigger narrative about, oh, I'm terrible and I should never have done that. And, you know, the story. We can stop right now because you're saying everything, I I would say. (laughs) The amount of crap we give ourselves Mm -hmm is so much more than anything we give everyone else put together. Why is that? That's because we've taken in negativity from people, regardless of where they came from, or if it was the mass culture, people know what it feels like to be bullied. People know what it feels like to be shamed. But what happens when we hear that, especially if it's repeated, is that we take over. They can go now because we continue. So every time you're late with something, you might notice that there's a critical voice inside of you saying, see, you never do anything right. You know, sometimes they say it in a nicer way, but we all have these critical parts that are not productive. Mm -hmm. There There are criticisms that can be productive, but they're the tone of voice in the same way that in a relationship or a teacher, in the way that the tone of voice impacts whether or not you can learn or be inspired to take an idea to a further place. Mm -hmm. That feeling of safety is what allows us to imagine. When we feel afraid, we get stuck in that story. Yeah, absolutely. I I just know that to be true just from my own kind of personal life and thinking about it that absolutely. And I tend to be that person too, where it's like, I had critical parents. So it's like, whenever I, you know, don't meet a deadline or I don't measure up in my own head of what I think I should, it's like, yeah, that judge judgmental part of me, I gets activated and like, see, you're such a loser and you're right. And yeah. And, but the difference becomes like when you start developing that mindfulness is you can start to again, identify that and go, Oh, okay. It's almost like I'm sorry. Yep. No, no, go ahead. I'm so excited talking to you. The other thing you can do is you can make friends with it. Yep. Because in my opinion, there is the leader us, the mm-hmm. boss, the uh, dominant part. And I yep. think of it as your dominant hand, you put it on your heart, you can soothe yourself yep. very profoundly. Mm-hmm. The dominant part of you needs to let these fears and misconceptions know that it's okay, sweetheart, don't be afraid. I've got it. I'm in control. And when you allow them to speak, because just as you describe, you can keep it pushed down for so long. And then it just gets in the way of everything. It's not so scary to hear what they have to say, because they're not the big boss. You are. So they're going to tell you a story like, well, when I was little and and nobody would talk to me and I was all alone and I didn't mm-hmm. feel good. And as you hear yourself tell a story like that, mm-hmm. you have the capacity to feel empathy for the little yeah. kid you are. 
And at the same time, you have the capacity to look at it as an adult and say, okay, that was like a little skin knee. Okay, let's move on. Right. Yeah. Um, I look at it like reparenting in a way, like, especially the same word stop. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my, my therapist operates in the internal family systems model, Mm -hmm. the IFS. So it's very relational. So it's about that. It's about, there's this higher self inside of you that has wisdom, has clarity, has all this stuff, but then there are all these little parts of us that develop through childhood, through adolescence, when we have traumas, when we have just based on our environment, um, And over time we reinforce that they get bigger. So it's about going directly to those traumas and understanding what is their story and making friends with it. I often look at it like a parent, like in that moment when I was a child and I needed something and I didn't get it, I have an opportunity now to enter that space and give myself what I needed. Right. So it's about going, okay, Jen, you weren't seen in that, but I see you now. And Mm-hmm. you know, you wanted this and let's talk about it. And it's so empowering too. Like, I well, don't know, I've done a lot of therapy. This model for me, it's just really resonated. Well, this is so the much healing Schwartz. Yes. And, um, the thing that I really love about it is I believe that we do have many, many aspects. I mean, there's not a human being who's not complex. There's not a human being who doesn't have a complex inner life. Doesn't mean that you're necessarily introspective, but people have a lot going on. When we think of ourselves as either or, today I did good, uh, yesterday I I did poorly, whatever that, that may be. Not only is it too shallow and unnuanced to really have truth in it, because things aren't either or, but it's damning. When you understand that here you are an adult and regardless of parts that didn't develop as much as they could or parts that you really wish to work on, you don't know if they ever will, regardless of whatever your liabilities or flaws or whatever you wanna call it may be, you got yourself here. You're still here. You're an adult, presumably, uh, to your audience. And that alone has taken an enormous amount of focus, intention. And I mean, the fact that you're here, here, listening to this podcast, you have crossed many paths to do that. You have said no or yes to different people and sometimes at an expense. So it's so unfortunate as we're so great at beating ourselves up to just think of ourselves as good or bad. When in fact, even if you have to attribute a value of good or bad to it, understand that that's one of numerous parts of you. So many parts. And that's, I mean, people often ask me like, why have you been in therapy so long? One, it's because I'm just fascinated at doing kind of the deep healing work, but it's also that I actually uncover new stuff that I didn't, oh, you know, have no consciousness about. Um, and it, it almost feels like an endless, you know, like you said, a black hole of just so much to, to explore. You know, one thing that was coming up for me, as you said this, and that comes up a lot in Dick Schwartz model is that also all of those things have gifts and they have skills. And when we can integrate those things and we can change our relationship with them, we can start leveraging. My biggest one, honestly, Sherry, is the imposter syndrome. How many times I have to hear 
oh, you know, quiet that imposter syndrome or, you know, push it away or abolish it forever. And I think, but the imposter has some really great gifts to offer. And if you were pushing it aside, you're pushing aside potentially a big part of you. Instead for me, I'm sorry. How good is the imposter syndrome when you have have to make a presentation and you're nervous? Mm Mm-hmm. Bring her on. (laughs) Well, what it tells me, Sherry, is this matters to me. It's important. And that might just be a sign to me that it's something that may be purpose-driven or it might be a part of my discomfort that I need to resolve, but it might be telling me something and that's okay. It's not a bad, you know, I try to get out of the good and bad kind of paradox or like, you know, the right or wrong, but it's about just noticing it and going, Oh, there that is again. Okay. And I, I see, yes, this means a lot to me and you're scared. I know you're scared. Think of it like a child, right? I kind of approach it from my standpoint of I'm the bigger parent. That's my wounded child. That's saying I'm scared right now. How would I approach that and support it so that we can work together better? Exactly. As though it it is your child. It is your child. It's a a baby part, you know? Mm So I like to think of it like this. We're in, within each of us, there's an orchestra. Mm-hmm. And we know that everyone has the same set of emotions to different degrees at different times. So they're there for a reason. Yeah. If instead of saying it's bad to have imposter syndrome or anything else, what if we understood that the entire orchestra has to be in a homeostatic balance and that that balance shifts all the time for every reason from aging to circumstances you're in to what's going on in your life. And that if you can think of it as the proper tuning, because the day you have to make the presentation and you're nervous, you may tune that up. Yeah. Yeah. To understand that rather than thinking parts of me are bad, maybe parts of me need to be soothed right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I see it. And I also see it that imposter comes up big again, when I know it's something important to me, like if it's something related to my business or my podcast, or, you know, something that I know is something that's really a a deep value for me that I'm worried, right. I'm worried that, you know, how are people going to perceive me? Are they going to accept it? Are they going to like it? I I know all of those things. So it's not about, yeah, pushing it away. It's just about going, Oh, I see. Okay. I know you're there. And that's my therapist always says, those are little trailheads that you can follow and kind of do a little bit more exploring to get to that point of like soothing and supporting that part. So that again, yeah, symphony, I love that bringing it all together. Cause it is, I mean, what I've also noticed Sherry is that there can be five or six different parts of me showing up at the same time. It's not oh. even just yeah. One thing it's, we're a blend of so many things, um, that again, just really, I think relational mindfulness for me is about really understanding that and knowing how you, all the different components of your symphony, how mm-hmm. they work, when they get triggered, what makes, what, it, what is their, maybe their tune, what tune do they need to be in? Nice. But yeah, you're the, you're the conductor, right? You're the one. And that's, what's just important to know, because that's why we flip out because we think, oh my God, this part that is not capable of taking over is trying to take over. So what do you do if you have a baby that's having a temper tantrum? Do you yell at the baby? (laughs) Right. 
that's what we do. So we really we have to not blame ourselves even for doing that. We yeah. do that because we weren't shown the right way. And I feel like what I've learned too, is that even in those moments when you do maybe lose your cool and you get really wrapped up into this part and you just react, there's always time to correct it or to not fix it, but you can meet that again, discomfort saying, Hey honey, I know I just got really upset with you. Do you want to talk about it? Do you, how did that make you feel? If, if mommy were showing up differently, this is how I would show up differently next time, you know, but I think there's always opportunities, even if you do kind of step over that line and kind of lose it, you can also go back to it. It's not like etched in stone forever. Like there is an opportunity. Um, but I think again, it's that mindfulness and being comfortable with that uncomfortable part. Cause I think that's what drives a lot of people away is they don't want to feel the uncomfortable, right? They just want to push it away. Um, but the more you go to it, the capacity grows. I was just going to say, it's kind of like working out. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it hurts sometimes. Um, and you know, you could just listen to the pain and stop and you know what, sometimes you should. And sometimes you say, okay, I think I can take a little more. I'm going to follow that trailhead. Yeah. So to wrap up, I would love, so there's a lot of leaders in corporations who listen to this podcast. We've been talking about a lot of things around relational mindfulness and kind of being more aware of how we're showing up. What are some things you think they can do to become better at that relational mindfulness that we've been talking about? Well, when we work with organizations, um, we create something specific. But what we don't do is we don't do a sort of um, a DE&I approach because that's really about here's the parameters, here's the rules, here's what's appropriate. People need to know that. But what we do is we provide an experience, um, a series of experiences that bring together your community in a way that is just beyond what anybody expected. We don't have any small talk. We will look at um, a very compelling piece of art, a video, uh, a photo, whatever it might be. Building upon that will be um, a prompt based on one of the core concepts of the week. Because you have so much depth already, it's very evocative. And then we go into breakout groups and people are asked, just based on this prompt, just tell any story that comes up from your life. And it's not because it's an amazing story, but it's because when we tell our stories, it's very different than how we speak transactionally. We see who someone is by the way they speak and when they tell their stories. And so in this, um, relational experience, the, the, the people are able to kind of go beyond whatever their expectations of meeting a new person would be, because you have this mutually compelling subject. So you're not kind of put on the spot. Nobody's ever asked to talk about anything they don't want to. But we also do writing groups where people explore their creativity in ways that, you know, when when you're trying to develop camaraderie, I think in the past we've had a lot of sort of 
game-oriented processes that are about winning and losing. And that's the opposite of camaraderie. You can still have a goal of succeeding and, and improving your business without having it be by cutting off all of your resources. So when you invite the low person on the totem pole to have a conversation with the boss, mm-hmm. um, when you have meetings as a group in a very, you know, it's, it's formalized, but it's very loose. Suddenly everyone has a role in this community. Before it was people who work together. Now it's a community. Nobody is ever revealing anything that is too personal or vulnerable. It's just a matter of sort of taking a step into honoring the fact that every professional relationship is a relationship. And based on how mutually meaningful that is and mutually helpful, that's a big part of your life. Yeah. It really is. And I think that's a great way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Now, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about relational mindfulness? Well, we do four free Zoom-ins a week, two are conversation salons and two are writing groups, one hour in and out for writing. And um, so you can go to the narrativemethod.org and sign up for any event. And we work with organizations, um, with departments, or the whole organization. So, um, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm. Thank you for the work that you do because coming from an organization, you know, we have you know ERP or ERPs, employee resource, you know, um, offerings, and they. I feel like it's too broad, though. I feel like we need to get deeper into the organizations to start helping support people, build the skills, um, break down some of those silos and walls that are just naturally there. And I, I always, you know, I, I have a belief that eventually the org structures of the future will include two new roles, a therapist and a coach. And I uh, strongly believe that we need those things, not only just present, but really again, integrated into, um, the culture, the, just the whole way of being in, in organizations, because right now I feel like we're just doing too many band-aid things that don't, aren't really meaningful. So any work that you can do in organizations, I, I salute you and I say, thank you. Cause it's needed. Yeah, and I would, I would just say as a final thought, don't start from a place of blaming yourself. Just be open to discovering something that will really be cool. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. This is really enjoyable. So I appreciate it.